0: God, I thank you for the gift of Scripture, and I pray that you would use this time uh, to benefit us, to grow us, that we may learn to be uh, your people in this world. We thank you so much uh, for Jesus, and pray that you send your your spirit among us so we would know you truly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I heard a really uh, sad report last week in the news. It was uh, highlighting the incidences of, of babies being left in cars uh, by parents and, and dying from heat-related illness. Every year, there's something like 40 kids that die uh, because of this. And, and what was most terrifying to me as a parent was uh, hearing that most of the time this happens because the parents simply forgot that the child was in the car. You know, typically, you see this kind of a headline and, and you immediately dismiss it, oh, those parents were being negligent. And we comfort ourselves saying, this could never happen to me. I would never uh, simply forget that my child was in the car. Uh, but the science doesn't back that up. Uh, our brains go into autopilot mode often when we're driving, And this has happened to you. Y- your brain knows how to get from your house to the store, how to get from your house to work or wherever it is. And often when we're driving, we just our mind goes elsewhere and, and our mind just takes us uh, where we need to go. And it's in autopilot mode when these uh, tragic mistakes are most likely to occur. That's what happened to a man from Texas driving his one-year-old daughter to daycare one day. He he wasn't the one who typically drove her. Usually his wife did, uh, but they were running late that day, and so he offered to take her. So as he was taking her to daycare, it was actually the same route that he took from home to work. And so somewhere in that uh, driving period, his mind went into autopilot mode, and he just passed the daycare, went to work. And he gets into the driving, uh, the parking lot at work, and he does what he does every single morning. He he gets out of the car, shuts the door, locks it, and goes up to work. Totally forgot about his little girl. Now the report I heard uh, was a near miss. A passerby saw there was a baby in the back seat and smashed out the window. And was able to get the baby out. They were able to revive it. So this was a, a near miss. A, a a happy ending to that one. But it's it's a really scary thing to think about that each one of us has the capacity to to make that kind of huge tragic mistake. And and that's the message that authorities and parents share with others. This could happen to you. I mean the minute that you think that this could never possibly happen, that's when you're actually most liable to have this kind of, of huge tragedy occur. So they want to warn us this could happen. You've got to watch out and be diligent so this doesn't happen to you. As we get into the, the final week of our study in the book of James, we, we get a sober warning at the very end here. James tells us that followers of Jesus are in danger of huge tragedy. For those of us who think that this could never happen to us, he gives us a final wake-up call, so we really get what he's saying here. So let's look at the last part of the book of James. Go and grab your Bible and turn there. We're looking at James 4.13 to 5.20 this morning. This is found in page 1883 of the Pew Bibles. James 4, beginning in verse 13, page 1883. We're going to see a huge contrast that James gives us between the big danger that he's warning us against and then the life that he's calling us to. So essentially it's a contrast between life without God and life with God. So let's start with the danger. The danger here is, is learning to live life apart from God. Here's how he starts the section. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Now listen. Listen. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, It is sin for them. Now, this is one of those passages that at the outset, it might be hard to understand what the big deal is. If you heard someone make the kind of statement that he gives hypothetically in verse 13, you wouldn't bat an eye. Someone's just talking about their business plans. Well, I'm going to go tomorrow and spend a year in this other city. I'm going to make a profit there. This is my little business model. It doesn't seem wrong to us. In fact, some of us who are planners might think, well, it's really good that at least someone is thinking ahead. This is me. I love planning. In fact, I brought a little uh, piece of incriminating evidence against myself. It's a little field notes uh, booklet uh, that I have lying around the house. And inside of it is filled with really uh, detailed plans for the vacation that my family took uh, last year. There are plans for what to do the day before in terms of packing and, and planning and things that have to get checked off the list and And then once we actually get there, these are the four restaurants we're going to eat at. And here are all the meals that we need to have provided. These are the meals we're going to actually make. Here are the morning activities. Here are the afternoon activities. Uh, And I was really careful not to put specific dates on them because some of these were weather dependent. I want to make sure there's flexibility. I even have a full grocery list for the day after we arrive. Uh, Nowhere in this book does it say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and then we will go buy groceries at Publix at 9, 10 a.m. on Tuesday. Now, what's wrong with that? I mean, you could say there's a lot of things wrong with that, right? <laughs> if it weren't for planners, some of you would never eat, okay? Now, of course, I'm making a lot of assumptions in there, right? I'm assuming that, that we're not going to get in a car crash on our way down there. I'm assuming that the plane's not going to go down. I'm assuming that none of us is going to get seriously sick. Now, none of those things happen, but, but I'm making a lot of assumptions there. And in making those assumptions, I'm acting as if I have a degree of control over myself and my life and my family and this whole situation that I simply don't have. And so James reminds us, no, your life is a mist, it's like a vapor. It's, it's here and gone. You are, you are mortal. We, we forget this, but every single funeral we've been to is a reminder of this. Our lives are short, little things, here and gone. And yet we act, we plan like we're little gods, like we can control the world around us. And this is the problem with the seemingly innocent claim in verse 13. It's evidence that we're starting to plan like we're gods. This is, is functional atheism. We're, we're acting as if We're going to direct our lives without any reference to God. It's living without God. Better, James says, to make our plans and our thinking with one hugely reorienting phrase. If the Lord wills, well then we'll live and then maybe we'll do this or that. This is a crucial reminder as we're thinking through our lives, as we're planning out what we're going to do next, that our very lives, are owed to God, our very existence is owed to Him. And that reminder, that, that thinking then, brings God into the focus every single day. See, this is how we should be orienting our lives, not to be living apart from Him or kind of making our plans like God's, living without Him, but instead to be directing every step of the way with God in mind. He is the center of our existence, the center of our lives. And so he gives the warning there. You're starting to make plans without Him. You're starting to plan like a functional atheist. There's a warning there. And then after giving that warning, he, he shows what can really happen if if you don't heed his warning. He turns now to the beginning of chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Now, he suddenly has changed tone, right? It's a parallel passage to what we just read. They both start with, now listen. The previous now listen was a warning. If you're starting to plan like God, starting to, to act like you are your own little person, aside from any reference to God, there's a danger there. And then now, listen, here is what happens if you keep going down that path. And he, he's now speaking like one of the Old Testament prophets. He's coming down hard on those who have oppressed other people. So the message now is for those who have not just started down that path of functioning without God, but now they are living lives that are fully outside of any relationship with God at all. They are now not just planning like God's, they are living like God's. They're living in luxury, they're enjoying the wealth. But, he says, think about how you got that wealth. And he's pointing out the oppression and the injustice behind what they've done. They've not paid their workers fair wages. They've defrauded other people. They have hurt and destroyed others. And as a result, their life is destruction. See, it looks like they're on top of the world. But in truth, it's all hollow. That's what he's saying in in verses 2 and 3. Your wealth has rotted. Moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. So from every appearance, it looks like they're the healthy, vibrant tree, growing and alive. But in truth, they're the dead tree, hollow, rotten, ready to topple. Now this little section here, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, is likely uh, highlighted toward those who are not followers of Jesus. And yet the strong words to them are included here in this letter to those who are followers of Jesus because there's a danger here that we are going to fall into the same pattern. See, when we make our plans like God's, without any reference to God himself, the true God, we're liable to end up right here, totally apart from him. That's the tragedy that James wants us to avoid. And this is a warning that we need to hear today. It's very easy for us uh, to think of religion in our context as a private matter. And that means that we put it within a little sphere of our lives, a little compartment, and it stays right there. So we've got the work side of our lives, we've got the home side of our lives, we've got the spiritual side of our lives. There's a growing population in the United States that would consider themselves spiritual but not religious. Some of us in this room would be, consider ourselves in that category. We don't like the label of, of Christian or, or religious, but we feel like we're spiritual people. Now, for many of us, spirituality still is a very important part of our lives, but it's kept in its little compartment. It's a private thing that doesn't impact the rest of our lives. James is saying it just doesn't work that way. He's challenging us to move past that mindset. He wants us to be mature and healthy like that growing, vibrant tree. And for that to happen, God can't be just a peripheral thing, a little sphere that doesn't impact everything else. Even when you're thinking about your business plans, God needs to be central in all of that, a recognition that all of our life is in line with Him. All of our life is dependent upon Him. If the Lord wills, then we'll live. And then we can do this or that. But it's all in reference to what He wants from us. And the minute that we slip from thinking about God, from planning in terms of Him, from, from God being part of the actual functioning of our lives, we're on the road to living without Him. And that's the tragedy that James wants us to avoid. So that's what living without God looks like, and the huge danger, tragedy that's, that we're liable to there. What does it mean to actually live with God, to have Him be central to our lives? So after giving this strong warning, James now turns to his fellow followers of Jesus to tell us how to live. Verse 7. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You, too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So in this world where it's easy to to plan and to function without reference to God and where some live without God and end up hurting and oppressing others, followers of Jesus are to live with patience. As we orient all of our lives toward God, we hear the great promises of God. And here it's, it's put in very short form. It's just a little phrase. The Lord's coming. We see it in verse 7. We see it again in verse 8. What this is referring to is the return of Jesus. So maybe you know that the basic uh, outline of the story of Jesus, the gospel message, that God sent his son uh, to the earth. And, and Jesus was born of this woman named Mary. We celebrate this at Christmas time. And that baby grew up to be this young man who taught with great authority. Who healed all sorts of sicknesses and diseases to demonstrate the power of God. He taught people what it means to have a relationship with God, to live in obedience to Him. And yet He was rejected. He ended up being executed on a Roman cross. The Bible says that what that did was actually a good thing for you and I. See, Jesus took our sin and the guilt that we have for our rebellion against God, and he paid the penalty for that on the cross. That's what he why he died. He died in our place. And to prove that this was the plan of God, God vindicated Jesus by raising him from death to life. The resurrection, that's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And after the resurrection, Jesus continued to appear to his followers and to meet with them, to teach them. And he ascended into heaven, and now we're waiting for Jesus to return. Because the Bible says when Jesus comes back, he's going to set everything right. Every injustice, every injury, every sadness that we experience will be fully and finally removed from God's world and we will get to experience God's new creation with him. It's the moment that our hearts are longing for when we have this sense that this is not how things are supposed to be. Whether or not you recognize it, that's the longing in your heart. When you have that sense that this is not right, that's what you're longing for. You're longing for that time when God will make all things right through Jesus with his new creation. Here James is pointing back to or pointing forward to that. He's referencing that. He's referring to that time when Jesus will return to set all things right. See, followers of Jesus need to remember that because remembering that is what gives us the ability to endure today. And James says that the patience that we need is, is like the patience of a farmer. He plants his crops in the ground and then he waits, looking forward to the day that he'll finally get to gain that produce. And he waits on the, the faithfulness of God to bring rain, rains early and late. But he's looking ahead to that harvest. I like to think about like, like hiking up a mountain. And the longer you hike, the, the heavier your pack feels. Your shoulders are tired of the weight and the pressure. Your legs are burning from the exertion. Your, your lungs are starting to be more difficult to, to fill up, laboring as you get higher up. It's all you can do to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. But you keep hiking, you keep going. There's this one uh, little mountain in Alaska in particular that I've, I've hiked a number of times. And I always think about this. When you get to the top, it's this big mass of loose rocks, a bunch of shale and stuff like that. And I, this is the worst part of the hike for me. I already don't like hikes. I don't like being up there. But it makes it all the worse because every step you take, the rocks shift a little bit under your feet. And I'm thinking, this is a terrible idea. And yet you keep going to the top. And you might think, well, why do you keep going? It's for the view once you summit. Once you finally get to the top and you put your pack down, you just have 360 degrees every direction. You just see for miles and miles and miles. It's an incredible view. That's why you keep going, because the view is breathtaking. James is pointing forward to why we can keep living with endurance. Why we keep living with patience? And it's so much better than that because in this, you don't have to put your pack back on and go back down the mountain. You don't have to have the pressure on your shoulders, the pressure on your knees as you hike back down. When Jesus returns, it's nothing but beauty and joy. Sometime, flip to the last couple chapters of the Bible, and get a picture of what we're looking forward to, the new creation that God promises for his people. Let me just give you just a couple verses, a glimpse of what he's talking about. I saw a new heaven, a new earth, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And it goes on and on, this incredible vision of what it means to experience life as we were made for. James is saying, Don't forget that. Live today in light of that reality. As we learn to live with God, to orient our lives toward Him, we learn to live in light of these great promises. And we learn to live in patience, standing firm no matter what, because we keep our eyes on these great promises that God has made. And James says that's what has sustained God's people for generations, remembering His promises. Look at the prophets, look at Job. They knew that God is good, they knew that God is faithful. He is merciful. He is compassionate. So we come to the concluding series of commands in this letter. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crop. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, at one level, it might look like this is just a random collection of commands, all the stuff that James didn't get to say that now he wants to make sure he says before he closes the letter. But really, these folk function as a closing reminder of the point he's trying to make here, that we orient our lives toward God. We live with God. And he's giving very practical uh, pictures of what this looks like. What unites all these commands is that they're about living with God, about orienting our life toward him in every single situation. And there's two different things that he highlights, prayer and community. Prayer is a primary way of living with God, in, in all circumstances in life, in suffering, in joy, in sickness, we pray to God. And if you're like me, too often, this is a secondary response. So if I come across a problem or if I have an issue first, I'm gonna try to fix it myself. And sometimes I'll put great energy, great effort in trying to fix something or make something right. And then when that fails, and often it fails, then I turn and ask God for his help. But it's totally backward, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's another form of functional atheism. Our primary response in every situation should be prayer. Just like our our planning should be first and foremost an exercise in listening to God, asking for his wisdom, and then going forward with what he calls us to do. As we run into all sorts of different situations in life, we live a life of prayer throughout this. I mean, Prayer is a very tangible, very concrete way of living with God that's why it's so prominent here but the other thing that's highlighted is community and it was such a natural normal thing for the early followers of Jesus that it's almost assumed here but even as he's talking about prayer notice how prayer isn't just a private matter prayer is a community matter if you're sick gather the elders together have them pray over you and this isn't just a hypothetical thing we actually do this now. We, we've gathered as the elders, gone to people's homes. We've put oil on people. We've prayed over them. This is what we are called to do. It's a way of showing that we are dependent upon God. It's a way of coming around people in the name of God to ask God's healing on them. And We've seen successful kidney transplants. We've seen cancer eradicated. It's an amazing thing. It's a great opportunity that we have not only to lift our concerns to God, but also to show that we are this community that's oriented toward God as well. Every Friday, we send out an email of of prayer requests. And every Sunday, we have a little printed list of those same requests. We don't do that just for fun. We do that because we're called to pray for one another in community. It's easy for us to think of our faith as a private matter, especially in the context of American Christianity. But this all-encompassing direction of our lives toward God and orientation brings us into community with other people for whom God is central as well. And that community that we live in is not the superficial kind of, of thing that passes for community in most Christian circles, where it's just potlucks and, and saying hi to someone, putting on a fake smile. That's not what this is talking about. This is deep community. This is talking about going and confessing sins to another person. Listen, I've been, I've been drinking more than I should, and, and, and I need some help with this. I need to confess this to someone and, and get help and accountability. Listen, I've been looking at pornography, and I don't like doing it, but I can't seem to break free from this. I need your help. Can, can you walk through this with me? It's actually confessing real sins in the real world to one another. It's deep community. It's seeing someone who's, who looks like perhaps they're wandering a little bit far away and, and having concern about them, not going and talking to someone else about that person, but going to that person and saying, Listen, I care about you. I love you. I, I'm seeing this happen. Can you tell me what's going on here? I'd love to help you. See, that's the kind of community that it's talking about. It's not superficial at all. When was the last time you did something like that? When was the last time you confessed your sins to another person? When was the last time you saw someone wandering away and actually took the time to have a conversation with them, to reach out to them and talk to them, tell them that you're there for them? These are not necessarily easy conversations, but this is what the church does. And James reminds us what's the last verse here, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is a life and death matter. That's why this is so important. Living with God is, is orienting our lives toward him in prayer and living in community as a way of living this out. And we started by talking about the, the tragedy of, of parents forgetting their kids in, in the car and there's been a lot of research and a lot of thinking on how to prevent uh, something as, as simple and yet as, as profoundly tragic as this. And there have been all sorts of different solutions. Uh, some car companies have put sensors in the back seats to alert parents when they get out of their car that there's actually a kid back there. Uh, you can get an app for your phone to remind you. There are all sorts of alerts and alarms and reminders, so this tragedy doesn't happen. Well, for followers of Jesus, we need the same kind of thing. We need those alerts and reminders and alarms to draw us away from, to remind us that, that we can't fall for that tragedy of living apart from God. And those alarms and alerts and reminders are right here, praying in all circumstances, living in deep community with other followers of Jesus. And I would add a third of reading Scripture. That's where we're getting these in the first place. Very simple things, and if they can have a profound impact on our lives. Prayer, community, Scripture. We need these simple things as reminders to keep us away from the tragedy of starting to live our lives without God. Now, for some of us in this room, these simple things are in our lives. This is where we live. We, we live a life of prayer. We live in God's word. We live in community. These are the normal things that we live with. But it's not the case for all of us. And so we need to hear the, the warning that James is giving us, that it's very easy for those who are followers of Jesus to start functioning totally apart with, from God, In our thinking, in our planning, in our our day-to-day lives. And in fact, the very tragedy that he's warning against is incredibly widespread right now. This is happening rapidly, right here, right now. Do you know the single fastest growing religious group in the United States right now? None. If they're asked, well, what is your religious affiliation? What do you believe? They say, I don't believe anything. I'm not a Christian, I'm not I'm not a Muslim. None, that's my designation, none. This is the single fastest growing religious designator in the United States right now. And in fact, over the past year or so, this has become the number one biggest religious designator in the United States among adults. And my generation and the next are prime examples of this. 33% of us would say, I've got no religious affiliation. One in three, that's a huge number. You might wonder, well, well, where is this? If this is rapidly growing, where are these people coming from who now have no religious affiliation at all? Well, by and large, it's from the church. I was shocked by this stat. 20% of adults in the U.S. are former Christians. One out of five adults in the United States are former Christians. They would have considered themselves a follower of Jesus. Today, they would consider themselves no religious affiliation at all. Perhaps more sobering, there are four former Christians for every one new follower of Jesus. Now there are a lot of ways that we could respond to this. We could respond by saying, well, shame on them. They didn't they didn't listen to what James was saying. They they ran off and they and there they are. That's that's their fault. Or we could say, Hey, good for us. Congratulations, here we are in church. This is fantastic. We're not in that group. Of course, neither of those does us any good. James is reminding us of of what's at stake. It's life and death. And and because we love our brothers and sisters, we have a deep concern for them. This breaks our heart. These aren't abstract people out there. These are our brothers and sisters. These are our family members. Maybe your son, your daughter. This is a story for some of my best friends. And you think, "Well, well, why why does this happen? Why is this so prevalent? Well, there have been some research on on what goes into this. Why are people leaving the church? And I was really interested to to find uh, some of the the things that people said of why they've been leaving the church. 74% said attending church just had no value. I'm just not going to keep coming to something that I don't see as valuable. 61% said, well, the church just has too many problems. 48% said, I just don't have time. 36% said, church is boring. And what's interesting is that for the most part, none of those responses said anything about, well, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. There's a very small percentage of people who left the church who said anything about their actual religious beliefs changing. It was about, well, it's not relevant to my life. It's boring. I don't have time for it. All these kind of things. But the progression goes from, from there, starting from, okay, well, I'm not attending church regularly, to then starting to question, well, what do I actually believe about Jesus and about God? And then eventually, faith is just totally out of the question. I've seen this progression in my own, uh, my own friends, and maybe that's you. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you've been there. Two things that this really moves us to consider for for action: What do we do about this? The first is you've got to make Jesus central. In our lives and in the church, we have to make Jesus central to everything we do. When when James warns about planning and, and, and making your whole business life apart from any orientation toward God, this is what we have to realize. Jesus has to be central to everything that we do. We have to live our lives oriented toward Him listening. Well God, what do you will? What do you want in my life? And then to live in obedience to that. So yes, church can be messy. Yes, church can be boring. Yes, there are issues. But we need church because we need each other. It's one of these key, crucial reminders that brings us back to the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of Jesus to how we live our life day in and day out. Make Jesus central. But the second thing is it calls us to live on mission. See, Jesus told this story about a shepherd, and I've told this story a million times. But the shepherd had 100 sheep, and one of those sheep wandered off. Now, most of us, if we looked at it, we'd say, well, 99% retention rate. That's fantastic. Let the one sheep go. We've got 99% still here. But that's not what happens. The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes searching after the one, and he keeps searching until he finally finds it. And when he finds it, they throw a party. Jesus says there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Our hearts, when we see those who are wandering away from church, wandering away from Jesus, our hearts should break for that. And then we should be moved to actually act on that, to be willing to do whatever it takes to sacrifice everything but the gospel for the sake of the gospel. So forget about my preferences, forget about my comfort, forget about my free time, all in for this mission. That's the vision that, that we have as a church. We call it One Mission, and this is the whole reason that we are on this journey. We want to gain God's heart for those who are far from, and we want to do whatever it takes to reach those people right here in our community, in our time. And it means that we have to be serious about this as a church. If people are saying, well, the services don't make any difference, or the services are boring, well, there's nothing sacred about having a boring church service. We need to act on this. How can we show faith that is alive? How can we be the kind of a vibrant community where people can't stay away? They know that there's something happening here. There's some power to this message. There's something to this gathering of people. We want to show faith that is alive and engaging. When Pastor Travis talked about needing 50 volunteers every Sunday, this is why we need so many people. Someone walks in these doors, it can either confirm everything they think about church Or they can experience people whose faith is vibrant and living, a community that is actively engaged in each other's lives, actively welcoming those who come. And it's about us looking at, well, how can we make our ministries more effective at getting people Jesus and making Jesus the central thing for each one of us? And then it also hits each one of us in our daily lives. Each one of us is called to live on mission every day, to live as a missionary right where God has put us starting with that one person that God has put on our hearts that we're praying for and we're actively trying to reach out. It's about being all in. James is reminding us what's at stake. Don't fall for that temptation. Life and death are at stake here. We don't want this tragedy that James warns about to happen. Not in our time. Not on our watch. So we're going to ask God to stir our hearts. We're going to listen for his guidance. And then we're going to boldly go where he's calling us to go to reach out to his lost sheep that he loves, that we would love them as well. Pray with me. God, I pray that church would not be something that we just come uh, and, and do on Sundays. No one here wants to just play church. We want to be a community that is so marked by the gospel That everyone that we come into contact with, even if they don't necessarily agree with what we believe today, would say, there is something there. There is something of substance. There is something of power. And may we, in the midst of that, be able to point to you every step of the way. Say, it's not us. There is a God that we serve, and he is so good. Let me tell you about what he's done for you. God, we want to be a church that is effective in the mission that you've given us of making more and stronger disciples of Jesus. God, please help us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.